Hello and welcome to Tips and Tales, Ski Racing Media's official podcast. I am Sean Higgins, and I'm joined today by Ski Racing staff writer Mackenzie Morant. Hello there. Uh, before we get started with today's episode, I just wanted to give everybody a little bit of information about the show and what you can expect from us going forward. Tips and Tales will be a weekly podcast where the staff of Ski Racing Media breaks down the important topics and news of the week, offers analysis and commentary on World Cup, NORAM, NCAA, and other racing, as well as hosting interviews with interesting figures of the sport for your listening pleasure. We are available for listening on SkiRacing.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Listening is free, so we please ask you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating and a comment. It really helps us get the word out about the show. Just search for tips and tales. On today's show, Mackenzie and I will be discussing the 2019 World Championships in Ore, Sweden, which wrapped up on Sunday. We will also be talking about the Stockholm City event that happened this Tuesday. And a little bit later on in the show, I will be sitting down with Zach Clayton of POC to talk a little bit about a new cut-proof product that has been getting some attention lately due to some unfortunate accidents involving some sharp ski edges. So we're definitely looking forward to that conversation. So Mackenzie, the World Championships wrapped up over the weekend, and you were actually on site for that. What was it like being at your first big event? World Championships was pretty crazy because it was definitely one of the biggest crowds I've seen. I think it was pretty close to the size of the crowd that was at Killington, which was is one of the largest stops on the tour, I believe. But it was also really fun because it was a lot of Swedish fans and Norwegian fans that were cheering pretty loud for their home team competitors. And it was fun to watch and be a part of that atmosphere and experience a big, a big stop on the European circuit and not necessarily in the States. Mm -hmm. And I know you spent some time over in Europe in December covering some World Cups. And how did ORE differ from, from those normal World Cup events? Well, there was definitely one of the largest crowds from the women that I've ever seen, um, or the events that I went to were pretty small scale. I think that the only one that I was at in December that came close to the size of Ore was Valgardenia for men's downhill. So it was really fun to be able to be on the ground for that and also get into some different areas of the finish because... I'm used to hanging out in the journalist ENG section, and this time I got to be in the restric- restricted section with the athletes and um, different members of the staff with the federation. So that was really cool. Yeah, I will say it was pretty impressive to see the big crowds in Ore. I was in Ore for World Cup finals last spring, and I remember being there was no. They had the, the finish building set up, but I'm standing around the finish and I'm wondering like, man, where are all these people going to go? Like there's no stands. And then the crowd for the women's slalom was so impressive. They were out there cheering for her hometown heroes, Anna Sven Larsen and Frida Hans' daughter. And it was so cool to see Anna pull out a silver medal, I thought, in front of a home crowd like that, given what she's been through in her career. Oh, yeah. No, that was that was a really cool moment. Um, I was standing up higher on the hill when that happened, so... I was actually taking videos for social media and that was, it was like a wave of excitement that came over the entire crowd from the, um, from the top of the course or the mid of the course where the stand started all the way down and around. It was really awesome to see and to be able to experience that big of a step in her career in front of so many friends and to have her family there and her partner there 
and just receive a lot of really positive recognition that I think that she's been working for for a long time after the event um, was really cool and also a little overwhelming for her, but it was cute to see how she dealt with it. The press conference was really fun afterwards. She was clearly super excited and she um, was really emotional at the award ceremony. So it was exciting to be a part of. Mm-hmm. And it was it was pretty incredible. That was Sweden's only medal, and they were the host country. I know they had really, really high hopes for the team event. They won the team event at World Cup Finals in Norway the season before. They've been medal contenders at pretty much every World Championships and Olympics since then in the team event. And I know it was a, a huge disappointment for the Swedish fans to see the Swedish team get knocked out before the medal rounds. Um, so I think Anna's silver really kind of made and almost saved the event for the Swedes. Yeah, I agree. But I think it was more interesting that the Austrian women didn't meddle in anything. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. What was your biggest surprise? And I think for me as well, Austrian women were shut out of the individual medals. They won a silver in the, in the team event. But I think especially in speed, the Austrian women have been on almost every speed podium this year. And to see them get shut out was the biggest shock for me of the whole series. Yeah, the, I think that the best that they ever did was a fourth um, in Super G and then a fourth in the um, Alpine combined. And yeah, like I've been covering the Women's World Cup the whole season and they at least have four or five women in the top 10 every single race. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty crazy to me that they couldn't break onto the podium. I don't really know what was happening there whether it had something to do with the venue if that was not something that the Austrian was if it wasn't catered to the Austrian women but they even had they had four girls in the slalom place in the top 10 but none of them entered the podium so yeah I think there's something to be said about expectations I mean their team that they sent was quite young I mean especially on the speed side I think Nicole Schmidhofer is the the veteran and she's 29 and all those other ladies are in their early to mid twenties and to have kind of all that pressure on top of them going into their first real big event. I think there was something to be said about that with those expectations because they did incredibly well in St. Moritz two years ago, but they weren't really on anybody's radar. And I think they kind of slid in and won a few medals. Schmidhofer was a gold medalist in super G and then uh, Stephanie Veneer was a silver medalist in downhill. And yeah, I think it's a combination of expectations there's definitely injuries and a Vyth is hurt as well. I think that's a big gap in the team right now. But yeah, you, you never know going into these big events. Anything can happen. And there's always surprises. I mean, do you think that it could have something to do with the fact that Goja's back? Because she podiumed in each event that she was in. And she hasn't been competing, you know, most of the season. And even though that's one person, she's a pretty strong contender in any race that she enters and even taking up one spot can kind of make or break um like because it doesn't it doesn't create that opening or that space for them to step onto the podium anymore yeah i think that could definitely be a factor in it i mean not just goja but Lindsay vaughn has been a non-factor up until the world championship downhill when she got won her bronze medal and i think that says a lot about when you have these big names who are known to be performers at big events 
come to their bread and butter of a, a world championship downhill or super G and then be able to perform with Goja winning a silver. And then Vaughn's, I thought it was absolutely incredible performance in the downhill to pull off a bronze in her uh, farewell race after taking one of the harder crashes I've ever seen, I think, in the Super G. Yeah, she busted right through that panel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that was kind of a just a huge moment. And one of the most memorable moments of the series was not only Lindsay's bronze, but Axel's farewell run as well silver i remember being waking up early in the morning watching it here in the states and it was it was a weird feeling to see those two take their last run and know that it would be the last time that me not just me but any of us would see these two great skiers ski a world cup and i remember watching the men's race and axel coming down basically a dead heat with shuttle yanzrud and my heart was beating so hard in my chest and I like wanted Axel to pull through but I think silver and bronze you couldn't ask for a better way to say goodbye to the sport for those no, two. No and I mean Axel got to share the podium with one of his teammates one of his best friends mm-hmm. which is an awesome way to go and same with um same with Lindsay and they they both had so many people there that were racing alongside them that, that respect them and admire them as younger competitors, as um, like people that have, they've competing against for years in their career. So the whole event and the fact that they did it at the same time, I think was really, really great given their relationship and their history as friends and um, how Lindsay looks up to Axel and has sought out advice from him for years. I thought that that was really cool that they could tag team their retirement mm-hmm. i thought it was it's, speaking a little bit about axel again his retirement everyone kind of knew it was probably coming either if not this year definitely the next year and then his announcement in kitzbühel after pulling out of the training runs that he was going to be done after worlds was definitely a surprise to me and i think a surprise to a lot of people and just the worlds in ore how many norwegian fans made the track over to Ore to watch Axel say goodbye for the last time. It was just a really, really special moment and something I I certainly won't forget. Yeah, I agree. And a, another top moment for me, for sure, on the men's side was Henrik Christofferson just willing his way to a gold medal in giant slalom. That was probably one of the most impressive second runs of GS I've seen. Under the lights, softer snow, tough conditions, and... I mean, it sounded like he was summoning a demon in the starting gate when they had the the mic and he's just talking to himself and pushes out. And to see him come through after so many disappointments of just missing out on wins, just missing out on podiums. And that was his first world championship medal. Like he's been a performer in the Olympics. He's been a performer on the World Cup, but something about world championships he could not quite figure out until men's GS. And it was just really cool to see him finally break through on that stage, beat Hersher for the first time in a long time for him, especially in GS. And uh, yeah, it was just a really, really exciting race to watch. Yeah, when he was sitting in the leader chair, he looked into the camera and he said, it's about damn time. (laughs) So I think that he was was really pushing for it. Um, I was actually on course during the inspection and the snow, despite it being the strangest weather conditions throughout the day, I think it rained, it snowed, 
and then they got lucky and they got some sun mm-hmm. after after some bad weather earlier in the day. But the snow was actually weirdly grippy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it didn't look like it, but it was. And they treated it beforehand, which was probably helpful. But I know in the women's GS, they had really struggled to create any power coming out of their turns. Like, it just looked like they were getting nothing out of what they were doing. And for men's, it was night and day difference. So that was really cool to A, see them fix that up so that they could power through and do what they needed to do. And then also have Henrik come out and perform in front of his fans because he's been gunning for that for a long time. And it was pretty obvious in his reactions that he was he was really looking forward to that moment. And that added another challenge as well, just for the whole series, the contrast between the weather and the conditions from earlier in the series with the cold, hard, icy snow for the speed races. And then all of a sudden it was like a 40 degree swing and you had rain and wind and soft snow for the slalom and GS races. And as a racer, that can really kind of play with your mind where you think you have this good feeling on this hard snow, this grippy snow, and then all of a sudden it's slop, it's spring slop, and then you're expected to go out and and perform. So the mental strength it takes for someone like Henrik or Petra Volova on the women's side taking the women's GS, which I thought was another incredible performance, great second run from her. And then just going into the slalom with the Austrian sweep for the men and Michaela setting another record, yet another record, record after record with Michaela Schiffer in this year. It was just really, really impressive by those guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with Michaela's slalom win, um, it was pretty obvious in her TV interviews that she was feeling really emotional after that run and that she was also pretty sick. And being on the ground with um, her and her team and kind of knowing what was going on and seeing the thought process that was happening. I was really almost proud of her that she decided to take a second run. And as she said in her interview with NBC, I think the deciding factor was Eileen, her mother telling her, you know, you don't have to do this. And the second Eileen said, you can take a step down. Michaela was like, no, I definitely have to have to take this run. And she was like, I don't see why I can't push for 60 seconds. It's just 60 seconds of my life that I have to put it all out there, and then I'm done. Um, And when she was in the finish, she was heaving and collapsed. There was a lot of collapsing. Anna Swin Larson also collapsed in the finish, I think, because she was just thrilled and exhausted and knowing that she put it all out there. So to see both of them do so well in that event and then experienced some sense of camaraderie afterwards and then I don't know it was the atmosphere of that race was the most emotional race I've been at I've never seen Michaela cry so much especially during interviews and I think it was really cool that her fourth consecutive slalom win at a world championship came after having to push so hard in the second run that was an incredible race watch for sure. Yeah. Champions find a way, as yeah. they say. <laughs> so talking a little bit about American performances, I know the highlights of the week were definitely Michaela's two gold medals, the bronze in the GS, Lindsay's farewell bronze in the downhill. The men, though, I know there were high expectations. Steve Nyman 
talked about his dream was to podium in in ore he came had his career best super g result actually in in the world champ super g bryce bennett has been coming on sniffing the podium all year in downhill didn't quite work out for the men in the speed events and then you had ryan cochran siegel with a absolutely incredible downhill portion of a combined sitting hundreds out of the lead going to the slalom run and unfortunately kind of fell victim to some of the deteriorating conditions in that slalom run but i think ryan should be incredibly proud of the way he skied not just in the combined but also in the giant slalom as well he's been shown that he truly belongs in the top 30 i think he's so solid and so powerful and at that level the difference between just being an also ran and being one of the top guys is so small and so little. And I think Ryan is on the cusp of finally figuring that out. And you can see it in his post-race interviews. He's frustrated with himself because he knows he has that, that ability and that talent and he knows how close he is. And I really think, and I hope that Ryan can, can figure it out in these last few races and maybe have uh, some surprising results. Yeah, I agree. It was exciting to be there and watch, um, Ryan, we've called him, I think that we've called him the past the dark horse of the season, but he's kind of proved that that's not his gig anymore, that he really does belong up in the top 30, and he has to come from the back and the bibs every single time. So I agree with you on RCS, and I also was really impressed with Nina O'Brien's second slalom run, even though she skied out that top half, she was gaining so much speed, she was absolutely charging and I don't think that that's anything I've really seen out of her at the World Cup level thus far this year she's done super well in Norams she's absolutely crushed Norams actually she's won a majority of the ones that she's entered or placed second and I think that she should also be really proud of herself I know that she wasn't super excited about how she ended that race but I think when she gets the hang of it then she'll also start showing herself as a top 30 contender. And same with Paula. I mean, Paula's, Paula Moltan's been skiing so consistently the whole season and consistently ending up in the top 20. And an 18th wasn't necessarily what she was looking for in the solemn, but she should also be super proud of herself because she came onto the World Cup um, representing the University of Vermont and having taken a break from the World Cup for a while after not having such a great circuit tour prior. And she skied really consistently and proved that she belonged to be there and that she belonged to be on that world championship team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Paul has been one of the the most exciting stories to watch men or women, especially on the American side, coming back to the World Cup after a bit of an absence, really kind of dominating the NCAA circuit over the last couple of years. And I mean, you watch her ski. She's got the flow. There's something to be said. Like, touch. You can't really teach touch. And Paula's got the touch. (laughs) (laughs) Paula's got the touch. I thought Ted skied the GS fairly well for what kind of course it was. I remember being in the finish and Ryan commenting, this is not Ted's course. He's not going to like it. It's way too straight. Mm -hmm. And... He was surprising, surprisingly pretty satisfied with his run when he came down, I think, because he knew that it wasn't his course. He knew that it wasn't turning enough and it was pretty straight. And I think that his 10th place finish was enough for him, given what he was skiing, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think 
it's 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 got to be tough for someone like Ted who is at the top of the sport for so many years and just so dominant to kind of have to deal with all these injuries, deal with an equipment change, and then come back to, I'm sure his expectations, like he wants to be winning and be on the podium right away again. And I think you saw that a little bit. And I'm talking with him early in the year, he does favor certain course sets. And I think the World Cup in general on the GS side for the men have kind of shifted away from his preferred type of course set. He likes it quite turny, quite across the hill. And and talking to the World Cup guys over the last couple of years, courses in the GS have been a little straighter than they normally see. And that definitely favors other skiers. And I think it's it's tough to see a, such a, a legend, really, for the Americans like Ted have struggles like that. But, I mean, ski racing racing's tough. It's a hard, hard sport. All right, moving on. So on Tuesday, the men and women, the top 16 men and women slalom skiers of the World Cup Tour went to Stockholm for the annual city parallel there where we had Michaela Schifrin come out on top, taking her 14th win of the season, tying Rennie Schneider's record for single wins in, the, in, a, in a World Cup season, and then Ramon Zenhuizen taking the men's race for the second year in a row. Um, Mackenzie, what were your thoughts? We were watching it together, and it was an exciting race. Watching Michaela's win was exciting because she had to pull off two really close, close um, runs in order to get that win. I think she beat, no, she did beat Anna Swen Larson by a hundred. Yeah, one hundredth. Christina Geiger yeah. again by one hundredth. This run right after that, and she was talking about it in her post race interview about how she thinks that double blocking technique it was something new that she was trying during this race and that that technique is creating a lot straighter line for most of the women and if they're all pushing at top speed and trying to take the straightest line possible that it's just going to make the times even closer and the city events that more excite that much more exciting mm-hmm. because she, there was a couple of races where the women were going back and forth that somebody would start from behind. I think even Frida Hahn's daughter had a couple of moments like this. It'd start from behind. They'd gain a little bit in the middle of the course and then they'd fall back and then somebody pulls out, you know, the gas in the straighter part of the course at the bottom and is able to pull off that couple hundredth win. And it's fun to watch, honestly. I really enjoy watching it, but there's been some controversy about whether or not double blocking. Oh, yeah. That's that's one thing. It was interesting for me to see a lot of the women adopt the double block. I think the men kind of did it out of necessity just because they were going so hard and so fast. And it was just kind of almost an instinct to put both of their arms above their head because they get smacked in the face just because they were going all out. And it's really become a tactic. And you see more and more on the women's side, women adopting that tactic. And I mean, I gotta be honest, it makes for some ugly skiing. It's not, I mean, it's exciting to watch dual, the dual format in general, but man, the skiing looks so much better when they're not blasting through panels. It's also a little bit riskier because Mm. if you don't directly make contact with the gate and you catch the panel, then you run the risk of hooking a panel Mm -hmm. and throwing yourself out of the course or creating that mistake for yourself that you don't want to create. But if you nail it every single time, it's faster. So it's up for debate whether or not double blocking should be 
the next big thing. Yeah, I've we had Ted Ligety send out a, a tweet kind of talking about these exact issues about how to eliminate the double block or at least make it so it's not so advantageous to just blast through every panel. And I think that is something Fist does need to figure out going forward. And then uh, there's even a little bit more controversy with Fist surrounding some of the rules of the parallel event because you had Wendy Holdner and Petra Volova essentially making it to the same point in the race and knocking themselves out almost on the exact same gate of the course and how to determine who finishes it in front of who at these events when there are World Cup slalom points on the line. And there's been some controversy. I think we'll wait a little bit, maybe till next week's episode to discuss this a little more once the rules get sussed out a little bit more. But post-race, we're hearing some chatter. Some people are a little bit salty with the fists right now about determining who finishes in front of whom. Yeah, well, Petra finishing in seventh versus eighth was the make or break of whether or not she was going to stop Michaela from clinching the overall slalom yeah, title. Yeah, that's right. Michaela clinched the slalom title. She's 203 points ahead of Volova with two slaloms left. So Michaela doesn't need to race any more slaloms this year, and she is the Slalom Crystal Globe winner. Exactly. Yeah, I think that maybe if Petra had come in seventh, that she would have been a little bit under the 200-point margin, and that would have probably caused less controversy, but... Maybe it's a good thing that this is coming to a head because it's if Fisk can't wants parallel to be considered a legitimate discipline, then they need to have the rules of the parallel straightened out before mm-hmm. it can be taken seriously. And the fact that it already goes towards solemn points is controversial in itself because it's such a different it's such a different event. You have to ski it completely differently, obviously, as we've watched. It's a little bit uglier. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think there are still some growing pains that Fist needs to get through to really kind of iron out what exactly they want Parallel to look like going forward, if it will be a standalone event, separate from Slalom or GS, because you have Parallel GS on the men's side, which counts towards the GS standings. And it's enough like GS to call it GS, but it's really not GS. Exactly. Anytime you have to and push out of a start that resembles a snowboard cross start, that's definitely not anywhere near what it's like pushing through a wand at the start of a, any other discipline. So that in itself is a major difference. And the time delay, I mean, come on. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, Hersher has, Marcel Hersher has spoken to a little bit how he's not the biggest fan of parallel events. One, I think because it's different enough in slalom where guys like he and Henrik Kristofferson, I think they've been knocked out in the early rounds, almost every parallel race that they've raced in. And I think Marcel won the parallel GS in uh, Alta Badia. And after the race, he kind of talked it down a little bit. He talked about how he thinks that parallel is more luck than skill. And I think that's something Fist does need to to address. Yeah, I think I had a conversation earlier in the season with um, Atle and Atle Scardell, the women's Fist race director. Yes, and he was telling me part of the draw for parallel for them is trying to create more attraction to the sport because it can be held in cities as a city event and be put in front of an audience that might not necessarily watch a World Cup race otherwise. Um, 
and it's a little bit more exciting because it is two athletes going head to head. I mean, I was definitely getting excited watching the women's races this morning because of how close they were, but I agree that there are parts of parallel that need to be worked out and tightened up a little bit before it can be really considered its own sixth discipline because it is so extremely different and if they want it to be considered extremely different then it shouldn't apply to solemn points in my opinion Mm -hmm. i think we'll be having an interesting conversation next week about this once we we think about it a little more and maybe add in some world pro ski tour commentary as well (laughs) oh my gosh yeah world pro ski tour man and coming up after the break we'll be sitting down with zach clayton of Pac. Hey, it's Sean again. I just wanted to take a minute to talk about how you might be able to help us out. The single best way to support what we do at Ski Racing Media is through a subscription to Ski Racing Premium. From podcasts and World Cup race coverage to our wildly popular American Downhiller web series, Ski Racing Premium is the engine behind everything we do at Ski Racing Media. It literally keeps the lights on for us. Subscriptions cost $35 per year for unlimited premium content on SkiRacing.com, which includes full-length World Cup race features and many of the pieces you will hear us talking about on this show. If you are interested in supporting what we do, head on over to SkiRacing.com and click the subscribe button. All right, now we'll get you back to the show. All right, welcome back to the show. I am sitting down with the sports marketing manager at POC, Mr. Zach Clayton. Zach, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so Zach, you and I have known each other for quite a few years now, but for the people listening who do not know who you are, tell us a little bit about your background in the sport and how you got involved with POC. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So ski racing was my passion. It's my background. Uh, Like most of us who grew up ski racing, started skiing when I was two. took a little bit different approach. I'm from Virginia, and as you can imagine, the, uh, the hills are pretty small down there. Uh, you know, the snow's good and hard, um, but you kind of need to get out of there quick if uh, you want to do uh, a little bit more ski racing. Um, so yeah, I went to Killington Mountain School all throughout high school, uh, took a post-grad year, uh, moved out to Salt Lake City and went to Romark. And then I went to the University of New Hampshire throughout college. Right on. And when did you get exposed to the POC brand? Yeah, I, I got exposed to the brand uh, in 2010, um, where, the, where UNH is, uh, is in Durham, New Hampshire. And it's really close to where POC was actually located uh, in Portsmouth, just about 15, 20 minutes down the road. Um, and, you know, I had been using the products for years, uh, got involved with the guys uh, over there at POC. They needed some help uh, during busy seasons, uh, fulfilling preseason orders, uh, basically just trying to get shipments out, was working in the warehouse. Um, and, yeah, it was, it was good. It was a fun way to get involved with the brand. Uh, it turned into an internship uh, after I graduated uh, and then eventually a job and I've been with them since 2012 now so about seven seven and a half years mm-hmm. and, and Pac is known I think for being one of the more innovative protection companies 
in the in the snow sport and biking space right now and I know you guys have a product called Pock Layer, which is a cut-proof undergarment, which has gotten some traction in at least the last few weeks and months with some unfortunate accidents with some racers having some really life-threatening injuries on the hill. And tell us a little bit about Pock Layer. How did that project come about? And uh, what can we uh, expect from this product? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, Pock Layer is is super interesting and and unique. You know, it's, it's unfortunate that there's a need for it. Um, but that's sort of uh, the world that we live in. Uh, you know, athletes are skiing faster. Uh, tuning equipment is, is getting better. Um, you, you know, really good tuning equipment is, is more readily available to athletes uh, and programs than it's ever been before. And we, you know, have been uh, sort of brainstorming the idea uh, for a few years. And uh, basically what it came down to is, you know, athletes were or falling, um, you know, they're getting cut up, sliced by their skis. Um, and we're like, hey, you know, there's, there's definitely a need for this. Um, so we came up with the idea of, of incorporating protection with a base layer, um, you know, something that's lightweight, uh, nimble, it, it doesn't restrict you, you can wear it underneath your GS suit. Um, you know, paired with the GS suit, the goal was that it would provide even more protection. And we, we came up with, with Pock Layer. And talking to some other people in the industry, the, the cut proof, other un- undergarments that are cut proof or just regular garments in general are generally in the hockey and speed skating, speed skating yeah. uh, scene where they're either full length body suits that aren't really adaptable to right. um, use in ski racing or I think the hockey protection is quite bulky and really isn't practical for yeah. use in a racing situation. So how did you guys go about dining it, designing this product specifically for use underneath the speed suit? Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, that's something that I think every protection brand, um, struggles with, you know, we joke about it all, all the time with helmets, you know, how do you make the safest helmet possible? And you just make it extremely big, right? But that's not really a correct solution, uh, because then it doesn't function well. Uh, and, and the same goes for Pock Layer, um, you know, it's, it's not only restricted to Alpine racers. Um, obviously, that's where we see the most amount of injuries currently. Um, but we knew we needed something like a, a GS suit is tight, right? Like, and they're not the most comfortable things to wear as is. Um, so we needed something that you that was extremely lightweight, that was comfortable, you know, still provided a little bit of warmth. Um, and, you know, we did some digging and what we came up with was uh, was utilizing a material called Dyneema. Uh, so Dyneema is a it's it's an extremely strong material. You know, I think it started uh, primarily the military and law enforcement was using it, uh, and since then it's branched out. Uh, you know, the fish, fishing industry has used it um, for a fishing line and whatnot. It's it made its way into climbing. They use it. Uh, for a lot of ropes and cams and other things like that. And, uh, and now outdoor brands, uh, sort of the gear world, is sort of, they're starting to adapt it. Because um, you can manufacture it and manipulate it in different ways. Um, but like I said, it's, ex- it's extremely strong uh, and has uh, cut-resistant, cut-proof qualities. So, um, you know, what we did was we, we took that material, incorporated it um, with some flexible material as well, um, and came up with Pock Layer. And with 
recent accidents being in the news, I think a young man, two young men in the last two years suffered some extremely life-threatening injuries with this type of accident. What have you guys, what kind of feedback has Pac gotten in the last month or two with this product? Yeah, we've we've gotten a lot of positive feedback for it, um, from it. Mostly, you know, people wanting it, wanting to know where to where to get it, um, wanting to know a little bit more about the product uh, and what it actually does. Because you're right, it's we introduced this product two years ago, so this is the second season that it's been in the market, uh, and it's just now starting to gain some traction. Uh, and it's it's unfortunate, you know, like we've been talking about. Um, you know, I think I think the knowledge is becoming available, but it's not quite there yet. But you know, you get young athletes who are on the hill; they fall and slice themselves, and it's you know, up until this day, it's probably the last thing that they ever thought was going to happen. You know, and uh, when you're dealing with extremely sharp skis, the cuts can be really, really bad, um, and so you get you get put in these situations where it's like, oh my God, like I've you don't know what to do. You know, people kind of freak out, take a step back. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's it's a matter of an athlete, you know, extreme blood loss, losing a limb, uh, whatever it may be. Um, and so, yeah, Pac, Pac Layer is, uh, we're, we're proud of the solution that we've come up with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we make it in a top and a bottom, junior and adult sizing as well. Uh, and it, it's been received well so far. And have you guys had any contact with Kelly Brush Foundation or Shelly Davis, who's the alpine skiing kind of representative for the National Stop the Bleed campaign in kind of raising awareness about this issue? Because like you said, I mean, you and I both raced, and I think we can agree that this was one of the last things on our mind when we were standing in the starting gate. Like, I hope I don't fall and, and slice my leg open, but I think we both know several people who have had accidents like this, nothing quite life-threatening, but yeah. we're talking stitches, time off snow, yeah. and I think making eliminating that risk and just making it one less variable. Parents, I think one, parents have to worry about, right. um, and then athletes as well, and, and coaches who have to be the first responder in, in many cases to these types of accidents. Yeah. What conversations have you had with players in the, the ski racing world about this? Uh, yeah, you know, we've been talking with clubs and organizations. Kelly Brush Foundation is amazing. Uh, you know, we, we've got a good relationship with those guys and have done some cool things over the years. Um, and Stop the Bleed is, is really interesting. Um, you know, what, what they're doing paired with what uh, we're doing, um, you know, I, I, I think it makes a lot of sense and, and the two mesh nicely. Um, you know, Stop the Bleed is, uh, you know, it's, it's after the fact. It's having those tools, having that education and the awareness so that if a situation uh, does come up um, where you need to know what to do uh, before trained professionals can get there, uh, you know, hopefully you're able to minimize the damage uh, and control the situation a little bit. And what we're doing uh, is, is trying to be on the preventive side of that. So hopefully it doesn't get to that case. Um, but yeah, working with, with key partners uh, in, in raising awareness is, is one of the big things uh, that we're trying to advocate for. Awesome. So last question, Zach, where can uh, our listeners go to find out more information about this product and maybe pick up 
yeah. the product themselves. Yeah. yeah, to find out more information, um, you can head to poxsports.com. Um, you know, we've got a good little write-up about what Poxlayer is, what it does, um, how it functions. Uh, and then to get it, you can head to your local retailer. Awesome. And we will link to that on our website as well, so you guys can go straight from skiracy.com to Pac. Cool. Zach, thank you so much for sitting down. We really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was a blast. All right, that is our show. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you guys next week. See ya.